0: You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 21st of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and a warm welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up on today's programme, what next after Avdivka? Towns in eastern Ukraine worry they now may fall to Russia, with Ukrainian forces lacking ammunition and equipment. Also ahead.
1: So we should be analysing China, keeping in mind also that the Ukraine scenario influences China's decision making. So whatever happens in Ukraine is red to be a Western weakness or strength.
0: We'll hear from Finland's presidential candidate Mika Altala for his assessment of where the world should be looking in terms of security and we'll get the latest from South Africa as the government sets its budget three months ahead of national elections.
2: Comrades campaign here to say
0: Plus we'll be in Skipol as Europe's first one-world lounge opens to passengers in Amsterdam. That's all coming up right here on the briefing with me Emma Nelson. Now, the fall of the Ukrainian town of Avdivka to Russian troops last week was played down by both the authorities in Kiev and much of the West. But Avdivka has been caught on the front line since Russia seized parts of the Donbass a decade ago. And for those Ukrainian soldiers trapped and wounded when the retreat was sounded, there was little, in fact, no hope. So what happens to the town now? Well, the journalist Ilya Ponarenko joins me now from Bucha, which is just outside the capital, Kiev. A very good afternoon to you, Ilya.
3: Hello. So Good just day. to
0: give a little bit of a, a sort of a recap of what happened, I mean the retreat was incredibly rapid, wasn't it? And it effectively left injured soldiers to their fate, followed by allegations that they were they were swiftly killed by Russian troops.
4: Yes. The um Ukrainian retreat from Obdivka was again rapid, again very hasty. In many ways chaotic but uh, fortunately not as bad as it could have been um given the dire situation uh that uh, the garrison of object was having by the final days of the of the battle again and again it it happens to be that um the ukrainian command follows the same mistake of um taking way too much time and uh forcing the ukrainian military and uh, the garrisons in in the city to stay in the um doomed cities until the very final final moments of this when uh the threat of um of being caught in a pocket in death trap is so critical that uh, basically retreat becomes a, a has removal and uh and basically an escape with all the uh, dire consequences that that we were having in enough particularly the loss of soldiers uh encircled and trapped by russians and eventually probably but may very possibly executed, it. so it's the same problem that we keep having. Um, with cities like Avdiivka, with Bakhmut, with Severodonetsk, Kisichansk, is that Ukrainian command tends to take way too much time um, exploring the uh, you know defensive capabilities of the ruined cities, and they give the order way too late uh, when it could have been earlier for the for, for the more orderly retreat. So it's the same situation again, unfortunately.
0: Tell us what is the strategic importance of Avdivka? Because those in the West and indeed those in Kiev suggested that this was a town which actually doesn't really contribute much to Russia's attempts to, to um, invade and take control of the whole of Ukraine. The Russians, on the other hand, are saying that this is an incredibly important symbolic victory for them.
4: No, as, as always, the truth is somewhere in between You know these two statements. Uh, you know, the Avdivka for 10 years of war for more more than nine years of war uh including the proxy war stage uh it was symbolic it was one of the if not the um best fortified and strongest ukrainian fortress cities just uh, on the front line um just at the verge of um, occupied uh, regional capital of donetsk it was perfectly stable perfectly hard for uh, Russian and Russian proxies to attack. It has seen numerous battles over these nine years. It has had numerous iconic places for journalists, for military people, for, you know, in the history of this war. Um, at the same time, it was also a convenient spot for the control of the um, enemy infrastructure and also um, the, m- the movement of goods and uh, ground lines of communications within the Donetsk city. So. That was important to have uh, this fortress so close to the uh, most important transport hub used by Russian Russian proxies. Um, with the loss of Avdiivka, uh, with the eventual loss of Avdiivka, that uh, um, follows more than two years of intensely fierce battles, especially when it comes to the last four months, uh, it's true that uh, as of now we have uh, a situation that is pretty similar to what happened following the Bakhmut battle. Um, in which uh, Russian and Ukrainian forces uh, have a fierce battle, urban battle, within the city. The city gets destroyed. Russians eventually push Ukrainians out of the city, and Ukrainians end up um, taking their positions just outside the city, which exactly what happened as of, in Avdievka, at least as of now, at what happened um, in Bakhmut, for instance. And uh, the battle goes on, and uh, Russian forces end up being so exhausted by uh, this many months of battle for just one city, that uh, their def- uh, offensive capabilities reduced to almost zero. And they again and again have to spend time and, you know, regenerate their power and forces for something something else to do.
0: How much does the uh, constant claim that Ukraine doesn't have enough equipment, doesn't have enough ammunition, um, how much does that Weaken their position at all, and and make it harder for the Ukrainians to put up any kind of resistance or push back.
4: It is true that in this kind of war, with such a dire disparity between the warring parties, just like what we have in the situation with between Russia and Ukraine, Ukraine will always be desperately short of uh, pretty much everything that uh, war requires. You know, Russia is a kind of adversary under which you will never have enough equipment, you will never have enough munitions because, you know, Russia is Russia, after all, it's one of the strongest and one of the um, rich um, militaries in the world in terms of resources. So yes, it's definitely that with the new stage of war, with the Western support, possibly uh, being reduced to critical positions, it's true that um, the lack, critical and chronic lack of munitions, of equipment, also of manpower, it's taking its toll. And one of those reasons is the um, uh, lack of ability from the West to provide uh, the equipment uh, in the more or less sufficient quantities, so that uh, you know this abundance could be transformed into you know real results in the battlefield, which we saw in twenty twenty two.
0: And what so, yes. and what of those towns nearby to Avdivka, which have acted as places for uh, treating injured soldiers and for effectively acting as, as bases for the Ukrainian army? How worried are they that Russia may be pushing for them next?
4: Well, of course, it's 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 a given. It's a given that Russia will continue. Uh, they will continue trying to capture the rest, um, the small part of the Donetsk Oblast that's still under Ukrainian control. But again, uh, and we have the same pattern that we have already discussed here, is that Russia will take its time, um, probably months, to regenerate forces, to uh, regain its exhausted capabilities and move move on towards the uh, something that we call Konstantinivka, Kramatorsk, Slavyansk, the uh, um, fortified area, as we call it. So simply saying it's um, this area of uh, major last major cities in this uh, north west of donetsk oblast is one heavily fortified um, area probably the last third and the strongest uh, line of defense of of ukrainian donbass so that comes next probably very probably because they have never ceased uh, their intention to uh, at least capture the the rest of the donbass region and uh, possibly move on towards the deeper side of Ukraine. But uh, like I said, what stands uh, on their way, on the Russian way right now, is the last and the most and the best fortified area in Donetsk, uh, in Donetsk Oblast.
0: Ilya Panamarenko, thank you so much for joining us from the town of Bucha. You're listening to Monocle Radio with me, Emma Nelson. This is The Briefing. And now here's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs joining me with the day's other news headlines. Good afternoon, Sophie.
5: Thanks, Emma. Two of Pakistan's major political parties have agreed to form a coalition government after days of negotiations. The alliance between the Pakistan's People's Party and the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz said it will nominate three-time former Premier Nawaz Sharif as its candidate for prime minister. French Prime Minister Gabriel Attal has promised new laws to safeguard farmers' incomes after weeks of protests by agricultural workers. Farmers have blocked highways into Paris over rising prices, regulations and competition from outside the EU. And President Joe Biden will introduce a series of measures to improve cybersecurity at US ports, amid concern that hackers could target key trade infrastructure. An executive order to be signed today will require ships to boost their cybersecurity and impose new rules on reporting cyber incidents. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Sophie. Now, before summer 2023, Finnish foreign policy and security analyst Mika Altala was known as a commentator on politics and defence, particularly Russia's war against Ukraine. And then the director of the Finnish Institute of International Affairs, announced that he would enter the political fray himself. Mika ran as an independent in this year's presidential race in Finland, boosted by his profile as a television talking head. Well, he was knocked out in the first round with just 1.5% of the vote, but told Monocle's Andrew Muller that it was nonetheless a valuable experience when they caught up at the Munich Security Conference over the weekend.
1: Well, it's difficult, of course, and I knew that beforehand, uh It was mission impossible, as I stated, (laughs) but uh, you have to be brave and bold uh, once in your life in order to show others as well the example of what democracy means. So jumping into and running for an office, highest one in in Finland, is of course not an easy task, but it Mm. was extremely fascinating. It was almost contagious (laughs) because it was such a meaningful Mm. thing to, to talk to people, the real Real people, those people who actually took Finland into NATO as well, because it was kind of a mushrooming opinion shift uh, that took Finland into that course. And also learning that side of of politics, uh, campaign politics, that that I am supposed to comment on, for example, when the U.S. elections are drawing closer and closer.
2: There, there is a conventional wisdom that there are no votes in foreign policy, mm-hmm. and that's that's not what really people really think about when, when, they, when they choose a, a national leader or a head of state. Did you find that, or did you find people were genuinely interested in it and genuinely thinking about it? I suppose in Finland, of all places, for obvious reasons, maybe people do think about it more than in other places.
1: Yeah, they do. They, uh, they do. Fin- Finns are very wise when it comes to foreign policy because of the location of the country, from Kola Peninsula to the gates of St. Petersburg. You understand that we have always felt the vulnerability when it comes to our eastern neighbor, although things are not fearful of Russia. But you are quite right that foreign policy, even in Finland, is not enough as a platform. So you have to have opinions on on hundreds of uh, other matters. But the key idea was to bring into the platform, into the election debates, serious foreign foreign policy discussion, and and, uh, to a degree I think I was successful in that. I mean, one of the
2: I guess underlying themes of this conference has been the prospect that Ukraine might not be the limit of Russia's ambitions and you you will have seen of course the reports of the Mm. Estonian intelligence services report of this year that says they think Russia is gearing up for conflict Mm. with NATO within the next decade. Do, Do you subscribe to that? Do you think that is likely?
1: The key question is why Russia is uh, arming itself. Mm. And we got part of the answer when when they attacked uh, Ukraine. So Russia is arming in order to attack. And that that is something that we learned. With that in our minds, we have to approach the future as well. We have to make certain that Russia doesn't have the chances of doing that. And therefore, deterrence is needed. And therefore, we need to look into our defense expenditure as well. Uh, so deterrence is the best peace policy currently. When you are living next to Russia, five to ten years, I think that's a good scenario to build. Uh, by then, Russia will be will have a kind of a tangible. Rearmament after Ukraine, Uh, whatever happens in Ukraine, Mm. of course influences that. The other estimates and other other research institutes have put out numbers. You know that they could Russia could do something immediately or in three years. I'm a little bit skeptical of those numbers, and I think the reason why those numbers are put out is to kind of uh, encourage paying attention to the defense. So one reason why scenarios are built. That are very alarming, kind of the worst-case scenarios, is to make people pay attention to the defence mm. question.
2: I mean, I, I know Russia is is more than enough to be thinking about and worrying about, but I, I did want to ask you as well because I know you've written about this. The idea that we might be making the same mistake with China that we made with Russia. The yes. idea that you could, I, I guess, incorporate a fundamentally hostile regime into a an economic relationship that would reduce the chances of conflict we've yes. seen how well that worked with russia mm. um do you think we are making that mistake where china is concerned
1: well, at least we should keep that in in mind uh, it is clear that china is arming itself mm. so are we making the same mistake that we did with russia we thought with russia that they are all, only building up the forces that you know russian size great power should have but actually they were much more predatory in their behavior so we should be analyzing China, keeping in mind also that the Ukraine scenario influences China's decision making. So whatever happens in Ukraine is read to be a Western weakness or strength. Uh, so we, we have to sow uh, show force there, support Ukraine. And we have to start thinking that peace is needed in order to have safe trade. Not the other way around. We were thinking that trade leads into peaceful relationships, but with clearly sure that it doesn't work that way.
0: There was a Finnish foreign policy and security analyst and also a presidential hopeful uh, from Finland, Mika Altala, talking to Monocle's Andrew Muller at uh, last weekend's Munich Security Conference. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio. There'll be lots more excerpts and interviews from uh, the security conference. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. And you're back with The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. The time in Johannesburg is 14.17, uh, 12.17 here in London. Now, South Africa's government is setting its budget today, three months ahead of national elections in the country. It comes among reports of wider budget deficits and higher inflation and unemployment rising to 32%. Or well, Feriel Hafeji is Associate Editor at The Daily Maverick and joins me on the line from
3: Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Farial. Uh, good afternoon to you, Emma. Good to be with you.
0: So the announcement is happening around now, isn't it? Do we have any indication about what's in this budget
3: yet? We actually do. And I expected a more populist um, election year budget. But in fact, there are big means to begin to reduce that uh, deficit over three years, which is very good news. And government's largely doing that by drawing down a portion of the contingency reserve. Um, it's, that's been funded by a better than expected gold price so hopefully it's not going to cost as much as it would have last year so these are two bits of good news the minister is delivering as we speak so i can't give you a global view yet okay but do we know what i
0: mean the the, the minister and indeed the NC is is in the teeth of a, a huge economic crisis isn't it because um, as i mentioned a moment ago unemployment rising to 32 percent. that's
3: almost one in three adults it's huge, um, and it's getting worse from numbers in last week. It's cyclical in, and seasonal often, so it, it could improve later in the year, but it still is our biggest crisis. When I've asked um, our audience and when I've looked at early polls for the election, jobs comes up, not surprisingly, as issue number one, uh, load shedding, which is what we call really severe power cuts, as issue number two, and then the rest, crime, and corruption, etc. So that really is our, our biggest concern. And our president just to tell you a little snippet is now the biggest employer in the country he um his employment stimulus initiative of young people um hires about 1.8 million uh, young people that's not at all sustainable but it does give you a picture of how severe our youth unemployment market is
0: now the the, the ANC has been in, has has enjoyed a parliamentary majority for what almost 30 years now it's incredible with these elections coming up in what three year three months time i should say um how likely is it that this parliamentary
3: majority will be lost um according to the polls again um three or four big polls in one of them 9000 which is which is really big um it looks set to lose its majority for the first time but a caveat's important to add Emma that it still will be the largest party and likely to form the next government, but that huge majority it enjoyed when Nelson Mandela became became president in 1994, when it enjoyed hegemonic um, control of the political imagination is certainly gone in decline like most liberation movements.
0: Um, just explain a little bit therefore about what this budget is attempting to do in order to make the ANC a little bit more electable.
3: Well, I must say thus far I'm happy to see that it's not a a pork barrel big spending budget there are sensible things but like I say there's still a good 35-40 minutes to go I'm trying to look at the um, at at my colleague's spending goals which you see so I think it will be in lots of public works um, employing especially young people and you're likely to see some improvements and announcement of a national health insurance scheme which is very popular amongst grassroots South Africans who really suffer a, a deleterious health system but I that's something uh, the uk knows about as well
0: (laughs) and tell us a little bit more um in terms of the way that as south africa battles all these huge economic problems what is the the effect on the rest of the region given the fact that south african south africa is such a huge
3: player so our loss is the rest of the region's gain Uh, an, an example that i find very interesting is that usually most exports from the region Critical minerals, uh, gold, coal, etc., would come through South Africa because our ports are in such a parlous state. I've in fact seen that Maputo, Mozambique, benefiting enormously, Namibia as well benefiting. So Zambia is in uh, looks to be really the flavour of the month for mining. So South Africa's decline, in fact, is not uh, bringing the region down as as severely as it once might have, because so many countries in Southern Africa are on their own growth path.
0: And indeed, I mean, how does South Africa react to that, given the fact that the neighbours are eating its
3: lunch? (laughs) It reacts very poorly because we've become navel-gazing without without our eye outward. I I guess it happens when you have so many domestic crises to contend with and also um, a tectonic election coming for, for the ANC this year. Tell us a little bit about how
0: South Africa's stance is changing as a result of, of the way that it's guiding its economy and the role that it's playing, given the fact that um, you know, as being one of the former founding
3: members of, of the BRICS group, what happens to its voice um, so its voice is changing um, significantly. It's it's pl- it's how it sees its place in the world is is definitely changing from being non-aligned to seeking alignment within a a nascent or a a new group called the BRICS Plus group. Um, what this means is that you see much more activist um, a human rights stance, say, in the ICJ case, but then it will not speak out as loudly on the death, for example, of Alex, Alexei Navalny, um, because it is part of that, that BRICS grouping. And um, what it also means is that South Africa's taken its foot off the pedal of what we call the just transition to a renewable energy future. It's still staking the house on coal, which I don't think is, is a wise thing to do. Fariel Havaji, thank you so much for joining us
0: on the line from Johannesburg. You're listening to The Briefing, live on Monocle Radio. Finally, on today's programme, let's head now to Amsterdam, to Schiphol Airport, where the One World Alliance has just opened its first European lounge. And uh, just scrabbling out there to, to join us, taking a breath from the frenzy, is Jeannie Tan. She's been looking at the lounge for us this morning. Very good afternoon to you, Jeannie. Hi, good afternoon, Emma. So, um, explain to us, you've been in it, you've had to come out because it's a bit too busy. So, tell us what you've seen and and, and how it feels and looks.
6: Well, I can tell you that the views are absolutely stunning. So, the lounge has floor-to-ceiling high panoramic windows of um, the runway. So, you can see planes taking off. I mean, that's really Uh, super stunning. Um, You've got the iconic uh, One World uh, colours uh, in the furniture, Um, we've got different uh, seating zones that people can decide uh, if they want to chill out, if they want to work, if they want to sit at the bar, if they want to have a glass of champagne. Um, It's very informal, um, very relaxed um, but definitely celebrating the the spirit of travel I would say. Tell us a little bit
0: are there any touches that make it individually specifically to do with Schiphol or, or to Amsterdam because when, there are more than one generically attractive lounges in this world and one wonders if one world is opening its first one in Europe it wants to make sure that it's distinctive.
6: Exactly, and and I think that's what the designers wanted to do here, with with uh, you know some some hints to local culture. So what we see are, for instance, they've taken inspiration from the the recognizable canal uh, bridges in Amsterdam. So they've got. Um, beautiful arches that are illuminated at night and the, the arches are reflected in the water. So you've got this beautiful circular form. So we see those circular forms in, for instance, the lighting. So there's a chandelier above the bar that has these beautiful lights above it and the entrance, for example. So, so those are, you know, some aspects. We've got also some um, birds um, that are uh, cheekily placed throughout the interior and, and, of course, the view. So, you know, it's, it's a really special thing to have such... Uh, So many windows as well, which I understood is not always the case with lounges. Um, So, yeah, it's opening tomorrow at 5.30 a.m. for the lucky uh, One World travellers.
0: Tell us a little bit more about why um, One World have opened this, uh, are opening this lounge. And given the fact that um, it probably makes quite good sense because BA closed its lounge at Skipol a couple of years ago, The, the Aspire Lounge Amsterdam, that's closed is this a direction that One World is now going to to take us? Insofar as it will open a One World lounge where there are lots of carriers, but no individual lounge for each in, for each airline.
6: Yes. Yeah, so you know they opened the uh, lounge at Seoul uh, only in January. So this is you know one month apart. Uh, So that was the first one in the world, and this is the first one in Europe. Um, And exactly, so it's uniting uh, all the different carriers into one identity. Um, And, you know, from what we understood in the speeches today that, you know, opening one at Schiphol... Uh, was also a strategic decision to improve uh, the customer experience, um, and you know Amsterdam being a very busy airport um, for Europe and globally as well. So uh, it sounds like there were definitely strategic decisions behind uh, opening at Schiphol, and it's a wonderful airport too. It's a brilliant. So, it's one of my favourites. Um, <laughs> its size doesn't sort of take away its charm, but you you have so
0: many one world operators um, at Schiphol. You've got American, you've got British Airways, you've got Cathay Pacific, Finnair, Iberia, Qatar. Royal Air Royal Jordanian. How do you make sure that you create a lounge which I can fit them all in, has a generous access policy, but also um, makes you feel as if you can, you know, if you are on a Royal Air um flight, that you're going to feel as welcome. And, uh, you know, it's going to be as exciting for you as it is for an American Airlines passenger.
6: Yeah, I mean, it's a fairly it's generous lounge. So it's 473 metres square, uh, from what I understood, and it's 118 seats. So it's not a small lounge, it's generous, it's very spacious. And I think you immediately feel welcome there, no matter which airline you're travelling. And I think every traveller wants a sense of uh, welcoming, a sense of well-being, a sense of uh, calm no matter where they're travelling. So I think they've done a good job with that.
0: Jeannie Tan, thank you so much for joining us on the line from SkiPol. You're listening to Monocle Radio, and that's all the time we have for today's briefing. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Lillian Fawcett and Sophie Monahan coombs Our researcher was Noma Ekwa, and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The briefing's back tomorrow at the same time, but for now from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.
2: This year Monocle's leadership conference The Chiefs is heading for Hong Kong. On the 27th and 28th of March at the Fullerton Ocean Park Hotel, The Chiefs will bring top CEOs and founders together to share lessons on building better businesses and to provide advice on how to succeed. Dynamic entrepreneurs and brand innovators will be there to offer inspirational stories and enduring solutions. Join Monocle's chairman Tyler Brulé, editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck, and Asia editors in Hong Kong for a packed conference with 100 delegates and 10 industry-leading speakers. Head to the events page at monocle.com now, or for more info and to secure company discounts, write to Hannah Grundy on hg at monocle.com. The Chiefs Hong Kong 2024. We'll see you there. From Lisbon to Lagos, this is The Continental Shift on Monocle Radio.
6: I'm Chris Chermak here at Midori House, and my thanks to Emma Nelson and the team behind the briefing for that episode. You can, of course, listen back to it wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Apple, all of those. We do have music for the rest of this hour, starting, though, with From the Start by the Icelandic singer-songwriter Lofi.
7: you notice how i get quiet when there's no one else around me and you and awkward silence don't you dare look at me that
2: guide to the world around you
3: Enjoy your life. My says to me mama